Welcome to Broadcast 1132. You can join us live every Sunday during our worship experience or at church1132.com. We're going to jump in. This is a series we've been doing in Romans chapter 12. And this is Romans chapter 12. This is part four. And we're going to read to catch up. Now, if you, you're probably going to have this whole chapter memorized by the time we get done. Some of you are already ready to be done with Romans chapter 12, uh, but we are inching our way through it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read up to where we are today. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. In accordance with your faith, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now this is where we are uh, to date, and we're going to jump into Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and following uh, today. But let me just give you a little recap. If you missed it, all of these messages have built on each other as we march through this chapter. If you want to go back, you can listen to some of the other messages on, on YouTube or on our podcast, our website, our app. Uh, you can find these messages and check them out. But the first, first uh, ser- part in this series, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, now this sets the precedent for everything else we talk about in Romans chapter 12, because it says, and what we talked about is, we're going to look through the lens of mercy. I'm going to put on glasses, I'm going to look through mercy at everything, so I'm going to look at all that God's done for me, and out of all that God's done for me, now I live in view of that mercy. What is that mercy? That mercy is everything that God's done for you in sending Jesus to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin, everything that God rescued us from, everything that God brought us through, that's God's mercy. So now, in view of that, in view of everything that he's done, Paul begins to unfold the rest of the chapter. And we talked about being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we only display from our lives what we contain in our lives. And so we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Last week we talked about faith buckets, how each of us have been given a measure of faith, and that faith is not actual, is not actual substance, it's a bucket, it's a container that's grown or stretched or enlarged as we use it. This is the idea, is that whatever God calls you into, as you step into that situation in faith, you believe that God's going to gift you with whatever you're going to need for that situation. Now, part four today, got up to where we are. This is, and our title is, Love Looks. Love Looks, because love has a look. A lot of us, love has a sound, but love should have a look. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Here we go. Love must be sincere. 
Hate what is evil. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? Just talk on that for a little while. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, this is what we're going to attempt to tackle today, and we're going to see how far we get through it because there's a lot here. But I'm just going to tell you this. Paul is the writer of Romans, and he begins to unfold through Romans chapter 12 how we should live our lives, Christian conduct, and now he gets into verse 9, and he starts it out by saying love must be sincere. Now, if you know anything about Paul and the way that he writes is that Paul bookends his statements so as to eliminate argument from our lives. He says, I just want to make sure that you can't argue your way out of this. And so he starts by saying love must be sincere. Now this is a bookend on one side, and then he's going to tell us all kinds of different things that have to be seen through this lens. In view of God's mercy, and love that is sincere, and we'll continue on. But I'm going to tell you this, love, it really does have a look. It's, I know we think that we can see love. We, we, we see love and like, oh, that, that's love. But, but love should result in some action. It really should, and a lot of times love has a lot of sound because we like to talk about what love is and what love does, and even a lot of the love uh, scriptures in the Bible, we know by memory, we can talk about it, love this, love that, but then to actually do it is like a whole other thing. Paul begins to line out exactly what love looks like. Now, many of us, we know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it is the love chapter. It's a love chapter. And so more common than not now when I'm doing weddings, uh, people, we ask them, you know, what they like in their ceremony. And, and the thing that they say they would, they would not like is, can you not read 1 Corinthians 13? I'm getting asked that all the time because it's just, it, it's so common to us. It's, that's what people do. That's what people read. But you know, the weight of the words in 1 Corinthians 13 are actually pretty heavy. It is amazing how it unpacks, and Paul wrote this as well to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's just look at what love is. It says, love is patient. That's what it is. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Are you wondering what love looks like? This, this, is what, this is what love looks like. Maybe you've never seen this type of love before. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Let me just ask you this question. Is anyone in this room keeping any type of record? You don't have to answer. Wiley, you don't have to answer. You don't, anybody keeping any record of wrong? It says love actually keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And the chapter continues on, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It begins to unfold more items and more discussion topics about love. It says, we got some prophetic people, but that'll pass away. 
We got some tongue talkers, but they're going to pass away. We got some really smart intellectual people, but they're going to pass away. But love is the thing that never fails. Love never fails. Now, the thing is, it's easier to say this, and many of us can even quote this, and it's way easier to do that than it is to live it. It is way easier to talk about what love does and how love operates. Like, like love is patient. I mean, that, that, that's one you just have to apply to yourself. That's not one you quote to your, your wife or your husband, okay? I, I, I've, I've, I've tried that one. It just doesn't work. I mean, it's just things starting spiraling out of control, and it just reminds you, Jamie, love is patient. I mean, just, it doesn't work. It's like, it does the opposite. I don't, I don't even know why. Uh, but it is easier to say or to make a noise or to talk about love than it is to actually live it. I want to demonstrate this for a second. Um, let's, let's use Pastor Keon for a second. Pastor Keon, jump up here. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna test Pastor Keon's artist skills. And I don't know, I, I don't know if he's good or not. We, this is not pre-rehearsed. He didn't know I was doing this. Um, but I, I just want to see. Um, let's, let's have you draw, Keon. Let's have you draw just, just a simple house. Just a house. I mean, I'm giving you like one of the easiest, easiest things to draw. And yeah, just go ahead. Just, just go ahead. He's, he's gonna, he's gonna draw us a house. He, he is a perfectionist. If you didn't know this about Pastor Keon, so we, we do have a time, time frame. He's, he's installing window treatments. And yes. Okay. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. This is, this is Pastor Keon's house. This is his vision for a house, and it's, it's all right. It's pretty, pretty straight. Um, I like that smaller window, but, you know, whatever. Um, who's measuring? But anyways, he's, he's just walking off. He's, he's done. Now, Pastor Keon drew this house, and the problem is this is what a house looked like to him. But, but the difficulty is in that I didn't tell him what type of house. I didn't tell him if it should be two stories or one story. I didn't tell him if it should have a big door or a small door. I didn't tell him if I wanted the windows to actually match in proportion and size, although I thought that would be expected. Uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't tell him that, so we didn't know. And, and this is what I feel like happens with love sometimes, is we have love. People draw love. They try to live love. But there is no measurement. There is no standard. There is no guideline. There is no instructions. So what love is to you is right for you. What love is to me is that's a house to key on. I would have drove, I would have wrote a mansion. I mean, I just like I would have like really added some size. You know, he's like, he's kind of just into the cottage thing. So, you know, whatever the teeny houses are in, like whatever it's it's fine for you. Because no parameter was given. And this is how I think a lot of believers live their lives with love, is we try to be loving. But there is no standard, there is no measurement, there is no uh, expectation given to us on what love looks like. So Paul, 
The writer of two-thirds of the New Testament takes it upon himself to clearly define to us what love looks like. So we'll go to our text and we'll look at some things that love actually looks like. And this is what it is. First off, love looks like authenticity. Love looks like authenticity. It says love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. The, the, the thought that Paul is communicating right now has to be the pervading thought throughout the rest of the chapter is that love must be sincere. This is one of the bookends that we're talking about that now continues on. It holds up. It supports the rest of the chapter. And he says love must be sincere. It has to be authentic, which means love has to work everywhere. I think that some of our love, it only works sometimes. And only with some people. But love has to work everywhere with all people. Our love needs to be not just something that we say, but love has to be something that we do. Sincere love means that I should sound like what I act like, and I should act like what I sound like. There should be some continuity in my life between the sound of love and the act of love. That I have to sync up my life so that it comes together. Sincere love doesn't just profess attachment, it displays it. And I think that many times, specifically in Christian circles, is we're very good at professing our love, our care, our affection. But when the rubber meets the road, when it actually means I have to get outside of my comfort zone, or I actually have to do something, I actually have to walk it out, it becomes a little more difficult, but we've got to define what love looks like. What what does it look like? Paul said, I'm not going to leave it to your imagination. I'm going to tell you what love looks like because otherwise we have no truth. Otherwise we have no stability. Otherwise there there is no system of measurement. It's just you're loving because you think you're loving and I'm loving because I think I'm loving And I'm right because I'm thinking it, and you're right because you're thinking it. What's fine for you is fine for you. What's fine for me is fine for me. But Paul says, no, 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 no. The word of God is the measuring rod. It is the grid. It is the foundation. It is the skeleton. It is the strength. It is our definition of what love is. And Paul says love must be sincere. So love is authenticity. One of the looks of love is the hating of evil and the clinging of good. I want you to see this in here. It says, it says, love must be sincere. And then Paul takes it on himself to add some more. And he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And you know what I found is like, uh, there's a lot of people in the, in the world that like hate evil. The haters. Like we hate evil. I was telling the first service, like it, it, Halloween's coming up. So, you know, the haters are coming out. You know, it's like, oh, evil, evil, evil. And I, and I, I agree that, that there's evil. And, and you know the neighbors that like, Decorate more for Halloween than they do for Christmas. You just like go by and like anoint their house with oil, pray over them, Lord touch. Uh, But you got the haters out there. But then it says and cling to what is good. And then you got the, the 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 good clingers, and everything's good and everything's blessed and everything's happy and everything. But it's not one or the other. It's actually, in the context in the Greek, is a simultaneous action that I actually detest what is evil, and in the same motion, I'm clinging to what is good. So I am not neglecting the fact that there is evil, but I'm in the process, I'm clinging to what is good. And I am not neglecting the thought that there is good. 
But I'm going to run from what is evil, and I'm going to hold on to what is good. Love must be sincere. Sincere love does not mean no boundaries. True love tells the truth. In our culture today, we think true love is acceptance. That's not the truth. if, If I allow you to accept a lie, that's not true love. True love is truth. And so love must be sincere, which means sometimes love means taking a stand. I I discipline my children because I love them. I don't say because I love you, there are no boundaries. I'm just accepting the way that you are. Keep on throwing that tantrum. It's bringing me joy. It's like, nope. We are going to take care of this right now because I love them. Because I love them. Love must be sincere. If our love is sincere, it must make tough choices. What does love look like? Love looks like honor. That's what love looks like. Love looks like honor. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. This honor doesn't speak to just a nominal commitment. When it says, be devoted to one another in love, this is what it actually means. It means, be devoted to one another like their family. That's what the the translation would actually read. If you translate the Greek, it means, love each other with a brotherly love like they're actually family. And and I, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of us... And maybe this is just true of our other services and maybe not y'all. But when, when I said this in the first service, they got all excited because they said, yeah, we're family. We're not going to let anybody talk against our family. Here's, here's, the, here's the tricky thing. The family is not church 1132. The, the family is the body of Christ. So the, 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 be devoted to one another in brotherly love means even the churches that don't look like us. Or sound like us. Or don't believe all the same things as us. If Jesus is at the center and we are Christ's followers, then that makes us Christ's family. And Paul says, I want you to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In a love that is like family. You know family. is Family, you can offend them. You know? And then you still show up. It's... It's, you know how that, you ever notice this? And if, if you're married, you know this is, this is a good tip for you. Uh, my wife can make fun of her family, can be critical of her family, can be offended by her family, can say anything. I can't. <laughs> and I found the same is true on the other side. Is I can say all kinds of things. And then once she says something, it's like, well, hey. I'm talking about my family. I mean, I don't know what that is, but just something comes up on the inside of you. And it's like, hey, don't talk about But I'm going to tell you, this is, this is what the scripture is saying, is I don't want you to take just blood and let that be the barrier or the boundary of your love. I want you to understand that when you are in Christ, you are family. So now I want you to be devoted to one another in that type of love. And then it says, and honor one another above yourself. Now, what this means, if you actually translate this out, what that means is not just like, I am lowly and I'm honoring everybody else above me. It includes humility. But the tense of the conversation, the, 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 the vibe of the conversation is this. Take the lead in honoring. You ever waited for someone else to apologize? You, you know, like, if they, if, they, if they come to me and recognize they're wrong, I'll forgive them. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll wait here until they show up. I will wait. But if they come, I will forgive them. Honor one another above yourself says I'm going to take the, the lead. I'm going to honor first. I'm going to honor before. I'm going to approach the conversation. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to, I'm going to take the lead. Honor is giving someone the love that you have decided not what they have deserved. Now, I want to show you this is, is honor is not like you're doing really good right now, so I'm going to honor you. The Greek word for honor it defines it this way a valuing by which the price is fixed. Now, what this means for us is a lot of us, we honor as long as someone is honorable. But this definition of honor says once that they are honored, then they are honored. And even if they are dishonorable, we will still honor them. We will still hold them in high esteem. We will still respect them. We will still give them weight. There's another definition of honor which actually means weight. So you honor whatever you give weight to. Whatever you give weight. So you give weight to people around you. Honoring others above yourself speaks to humility. But like we said, it's better translated to take the lead. Love looks like being the first one to act. Love looks like showing honor, not seeking honor. That's what love looks like. I mean, as we begin to define this, Paul is making sure that we have no excuse He's making sure that we have no way out uh, uh, from trying to work ourselves around what love is. So love is honor, but love also, it looks like zeal. Now this one's interesting to me because Paul is walking through very practical things. He's saying love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. And then all of a sudden, it's as if Paul takes a sidestep out of the initial conversation that we're having, and he starts talking about zeal. And spiritual, he has not been talking anything about spirituality. He's been only talking about practicality. But now all of a sudden he takes this sidestep and he begins to look into this conversation and now he's talking about spiritual things and he says this. He says, never be lacking in zeal. How, how many times can you lack in zeal? Just, just checking, just checking. For all these people, just, you know, sometimes people like think church should be like a place where there is no zeal. So that's just, it's just hard. It's hard, isn't it, to read the Bible? It, it's just like it arrests our perspectives. Like, like that, you know that scripture in Psalms, it says, make a joyful noise. Interesting. The other one says, shout unto God with the voice of, of triumph. It just, I know, it just messes with our 2017 theology. It says, never be lacking in zeal. Not ever. Not in bad times, not in good times. Don't be lacking in zeal. Never. I mean, Paul, like, gives us no chance. He gives us no escape. Like, hey, on the weekends, I understand. Like, you don't want to keep your zeal, like, at 100 all the time. So you can kind of, like, take it down to about 70. He says never. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And then he explains, we'll combine verse 11 and 12, he, com he explains how we do this. Because if you're not careful... You will just be pumped up by Paul's word of do not be lacking in zeal. I mean, there's a lot of you in here that this gets, this is like, you're like me, you're like passionate, and so you're like, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. And we're like, yes, let's go take the city. 
And and then Paul's like, yeah, all you guys are great, but you don't know how. So everyone's fired up and everyone's excited, but you don't know what zeal actually means. Because zeal is not volume. Zeal is not production and lights. And zeal is not just using your voice. Paul begins to describe how you have this spiritual fervor that he's talking about. And he says, be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When Paul says spiritual fervor, this word fervor, it means the temperament of the Christian that is compared to water bubbling over. So it's like something's going on inside of you, and that fervor just bubbles up over you, out of you. And the way that you keep that bubbling is by these practical things of being joyful in hope. It's not as attractive when Paul throws in these other things, I just want to say, never be lacking in zeal. Amen. Enjoy lunch. Go Cowboys. But he, he, he doesn't. Maybe that's what they need is Paul to it, it, need some spiritual intervention. But Paul, he takes it a step further and he says, here's the way that you never be lacking in zeal. These are the practical how-tos of how to never be lacking in zeal and to keep your spiritual fervor bubbling up within you and overflowing. My spiritual fervor should produce in me practical love. See, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't get so caught up in the practicalities that you miss the spiritual fuel that enables you to do those things that are practical. And this is what we say in our community is that everything that is spiritual must be practical and everything that is practical must be spiritual. We don't serve a Sunday God, a Wednesday God, a weekend God. We serve a 24-7, 365 God. So I can't preach something on Sunday that I can't apply on Monday. We can't just come in, hoop, holler, roll around, shake, shout, whatever you want to do, and then not be able to live differently throughout the week. So what I do practically, I have to incorporate spirituality, and what I do spiritually, I have to live practically. You, You ever know those super spiritual people? You know, like super, super spiritual. Like the phone falls off the podium and it's like, it's a devil. You know what I'm saying? Like they trip down the the platform and they're like, it's a demon. And and, and then like the the, the air conditioner comes on and starts to filter through the auditorium and they're like, the presence of God's here. It's like, no, it's, it's the AC. I mean, it feels good. The super spiritual side of us has to be incorporated practically. I love the presence of God, but I have to incorporate the, incorporate the presence of God into my life practically. I, I, I love and I believe in spiritual warfare, and I believe that we're in a fight and there's a battle behind the battle, but I also know and understand that I gotta apply that practically to my every day-to-day life, and I know this, that when I turned the lights on this morning, the light came on, the darkness left. There wasn't much fight. So when Jesus shows up, he wins. That's, that's how spiritual warfare goes. That, that's, that's what happens. Now, I believe there's a fight, there's a struggle, but we've got to understand who won the fight and where we stand in it. My spiritual fervor must produce practical love, and this is how we keep our spiritual fervor, by being joyful in hope. That means having hope in the midst, not when things are going good, but when you're going through something. Patient in affliction. Can you imagine going through one of the just hardest days of your life and someone coming up to you and just saying, hey, just be patient. 
It's like, I'll show you patience. I mean, it's like, <laughs> be patient. Are you serious? Like, I am. And this, he says, this will actually stoke the fire of your spiritual fervor is to wait on the Lord in hope and in joy, to be patient in affliction and to be faithful in prayer. It's like Paul takes a sidestep out of this practical conversation to show us that you have to spiritually enable yourself to do what I'm asking you to do, which means you get your strength from this spiritual side, but then you have to actually live it out practically. Practically. Love looks like zeal, but love looks like, number four, love looks like generosity. Love looks like generosity. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And we're going to tackle verse 14 next week uh, along with some of the other ones. But I want, you, I want to key in on this. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice it. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. I, I, I found this out about generosity. And we can see this all throughout Scripture. That loving and giving are synonymous. You can't separate them. You know you can give without loving? But you can't love without giving. Wherever there is great love, there is also great generosity. You see these things go hand in hand. You give to your kids because you love them. You, you, when you love something, you give to it. You may have a hobby that you just pour money into. It's because you love it. You could pour money into it without love, but it, you probably wouldn't. It's because you love it that you pour money into it. You will not find great love without great generosity. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. There goes Paul with that extreme language again. He doesn't even give us a way out. He says all people. All people. Well, I mean, I'll do good to the people that deserve good. Paul says all. He uses these blanket statements. Like never and always and all. I mean, it's just, it is so convicting. And he says, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, this is interesting because Paul has not made any specifications that anyone is outside of love, but he does give us our first parameters on extreme love and extreme generosity. And he says, anyone who belongs to the family of faith, he said, you should do extra. He should do extra, not, not church 1132, but anybody who belongs to faith or to Jesus, then we should do extra and live generously to them. Now, now back in the days when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, this is what would happen is they would write these letters, and, and, and the people in the churches, when they would travel, they would, they would have their leaders, their overseers, write them a letter, a letter, they called it a letter of communion. And that letter of communion talked or spoke to the community that they were connected with. And as they traveled from city to city, oftentimes cities were so far apart that they, and they were walking or they were on, on donkey or horse. And as they're going between city to city, there would not be hotels or inns to stop at during the night. So what they would do is they would find the house of another believer. And they would show them their letter that showed the community that they were a part of. And on showing that letter, people of faith were expected to throw open the doors of their house, to bring them in, to clothe them, to feed them, to care for them, and to help them on to their next destination. I mean, 
That's how they lived their life. And so when Paul's saying practice hospitality, he's encouraging people to not get stingy with your time, with your life, with your schedule, with your resources. He said, don't get stingy. I want you to practice. And the better word for this is actually to pursue opportunities to be hospitable. I want you to look for, can you imagine a church that is like looking for ways to be generous? Pastor, just can you please give me a, a place I can serve? Can you please give me an opportunity to give some money? I'm trying to give a car away. Can you please give me someone to, I just want to be, I want to open my home for a group. I want, can you imagine a church that was just banging down the doors of the church to be hospitable? This is what Paul's saying. He says to practice or to pursue hospitality. I want to give you one scripture and our last one as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I want you to hear this. It says their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Paul is encouraging the churches to not just practice, but to pursue hospitality, to be proactive with blessing, to be proactive with generosity. And he ends our segment today with our last thing that love looks like. Love looks like empathy. Love looks like empathy. It says this in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Paul winds down this entire section with this definition really of empathy. Sympathy we know is to be with feeling. Empathy is to be in feeling. It is to see through someone else's eyes. When we have sympathy for someone, we see the condition that they're in. When you have empathy, you get into that condition and you feel it and you see it. It's a huge difference. But this is what Paul is saying. He says, I want you to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I want you to get in what they feel and I want you to feel it. This, this weekend on Friday night, we were in Colorado at some of our Churches, member, some of our interns that graduated their wedding, families from the church were there. We're all celebrating. It was amazing. We're celebrating two godly young people coming together in marriage. I mean, we're rejoicing with those who rejoice. Flew in yesterday morning just in time to be here for a funeral that we're doing for a 40-year-old man in our church that passed away. Mom and dad there grieving at the casket. His two, two daughters grieving the passing of their dad. From Friday night rejoicing to Saturday within 24 hours, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I think that's what Paul is saying is that while other people are rejoicing, there's other people that are mourning. And while some are mourning, some are rejoicing. So as you walk along this life with the people that you're in, instead of taking what you are feeling and putting it on someone else, get in their shoes and feel what they feel. Experience what they experience. 
Jamie's reading a book on empathy right now, and the author says this, if your theology doesn't cause you to love people more, it's time to stop and question it. If my theology is not causing me to love people more sincerely, to love people more authentically, to love people more generously, then I have to stop and reconsider because my God says that He is a God of love. That's who He is. He is love. Empathy is the ability to shift our brain out of our own perspective and into someone else's world, feelings, and experiences. You know, the problem is that most of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we listen to respond. We don't listen to understand. Empathy is saying that you are going through something that I don't understand, so I have to get out of my mind, and I have to get into yours, and then I can feel what you feel. So I have to rejoice with those rejoicing at the wedding, these people coming together, and I've got to let my heart soar and be excited and happy all the, all the time knowing the next morning I was getting on a flight to come back. Then I have to stand with the family as they're grieving their dad. That's ministry. That's, let me just take it down a little notch because when we say ministry, we think pastoral. That's the Christian life. It's to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. It's empathy. You know, most people that have been hurt by the church are because of a lack of empathy. Because we have put our experiences on someone else's life and we have not been able to see through their pain and see through their eyes and see through their experiences. If you could get in their shoes and feel what they felt, you might have an understanding for what they've walked through. You know what's interesting, Paul? Again, he does not give us any out he just says rejoice with those who rejoice. He didn't say what they're rejoicing about. Because we want to choose, well, we'll rejoice with them because these ones are righteous. He says rejoice with those who rejoice. And he says mourn with those who mourn. And he didn't say that only the people that have legitimate tragedies. He just said for those that are mourning. So empathy eliminates my possibility of saying, well, if you wouldn't have gone there and you wouldn't have done that, it wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have been with that crowd, if you wouldn't have gone there, you would, no, that's not empathy. Paul says, mourn with those who mourn. Well, if you would have listened to what I said. You, no, mourn with those who mourn. John 13, verse 34 and 35, it says, a new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking now. This is not even Paul. This is the words of Jesus. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. By what? By your love? Well, by my prophetic gifting? By my spectacular communicating? No, just love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. I just want to say this to somebody that you might be here and maybe I don't know what you came in with or what you're struggling with, but I've, I, I felt as I was praying this week about this message, I felt that I'm going to encourage us. We're all going to be convicted and we're all going to do better and try to love better, but there's many in this room that you have been affected by the lack of love in a believer's life. 
You, you have been affected by a lack of empathy in someone else's life where they haven't been able to see what you're going through. They haven't been able to see what you're struggling with. They haven't been able to see through your eyes or get into your shoes. And I just want to tell you that the Bible says that we have a great high priest who didn't stay in heaven, but he came down to earth. He literally got into our shoes and into our life and into our skin so he could feel what we feel, so he could know what we know, so he could encounter what we encounter, so that he could have great compassion on me and on you. That Jesus is the Jesus that he says, now I want you to love others as I have loved you. What, I just want to ask you this question and we'll close. What if we eliminated all types of measurement for who was a Christian and who was not beyond love? That was it. And people just started combing through your Facebook to see, is this a believer? Is he a believer? Can't find any love. I'll let you draw your own conclusion. Scrolling through Twitter, trying to find, is this a believer? Is this a can't find any love looking at your calendar looking at where you spend your money what you do with your time is there any love love has a look it has a look and it looks like action that's why Jesus didn't wish something that's why Jesus didn't just dream up something that's why Jesus did something because the Bible says for God so loved the world that he gave it was an action word it was definitive it was decisive he said i love so much i've got to do something and that's what love does thanks for listening you can find out more about us at church 1132.com